Martin Luther said, distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom. One, whoever person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. Where this is lacking, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian and who is a pagan. It is vital that we distinguish law and gospel. We must keep them separate. Especially in the doctrine of justification. It must be by grace. Alone. When we say alone, we mean 100% by itself. And if you add one ounce of law, one ounce of covenantal faithfulness, one ounce of works, one bit of your doing, just the slightest feather weight of your actions completely destroys grace altogether. Paul makes it clear in Romans eleven six, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Or otherwise, it would no longer be grace. God's design salvation to be by grace, 100% grace alone, so that no one, not you or I, can boast, take credit. And say, well, I did this at least. It was at least my faith. Or I chose God. Or I did this. Or I did that. Or I remained faithful to the grace God gave me initially. That ruins salvation. We must keep these things distinguished. Law and grace But I'm going to show you how not only they must be distinguished, but how they actually are born out. How grace is born out of works. How you cannot have grace without the law. Now for us, we distinguish them in our lives. But as Jim Ranahem did say, we are saved by works. And we've got to understand that the grace that we receive by free Gift did not cost, did cost Jesus everything. Do you realize that for you to be saved, it cost God everything? You know, we're not purchased with silver or gold. That would have been easy for God. You know, say for your redemption, it was going to cost all the gold to the moon and back three times. There's no way you could pay the debt. That's too much. I don't have that much gold and there's no way I can obtain that much gold. I don't know if there's enough gold in the world. If I had all the gold in the world, it's just not going to measure up to the debt that I owe God. I can't do it. I'm lost. But for God, if that's what it costs to redeem you, he could have snapped his finger, said the word, and out of nothing, a bunch of gold could have appeared. It would have cost him nothing. It would have been easy for God to redeem you with silver and gold. Cost him nothing. But what did it cost God to redeem you? The only thing that could cost him anything is only begotten son. And for Jesus, he not only came and lived a life, he kept that law on your behalf and worked for it. Earned it. And for, for Christ Jesus, it was 100% works, not any grace. For you, it's 100% grace without works. Isn't this a marvelous gospel? But if we're going to distinguish law and gospel, we have to see where the real distinction takes place. And it takes place in the covenantal format. It takes place... In understanding the distinction between the old and new covenants. 
Really, this distinction between law and grace is a distinction between the covenants. And there are four things I want to try to teach today. These are the four ideas. I got three points, but there's four truths that I want to carry uh, out in these three points. The four truths are this. The distinction between law and gospel is founded in the distinction between the Old and New Testament. That's kind of my thesis, the theme. And we need to remember when we say testament, it's a synonym for the word covenant for the most part. So when we say Old Testament, we're thinking Old Covenant. And when we say New Testament, we're thinking New Covenant. A covenant essentially a testament. And when we say Old Covenant, though principally and most often in the New Testament when the word Old Covenant is mentioned... In the passage we had read earlier in Jeremiah 31, when we primarily think of Old Covenant, we're thinking of the Mosaic Covenant. That's the predominant covenant that we learn about in the Old Testament. And principally, Old Covenant is referring to the Mosaic Covenant, but it's not only referring to the Mosaic Covenant. The Old Covenant refers to all the covenants revealed in the Old Testament. And... We're going to learn, secondly, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament is founded on the law. We have to establish that. The Old Covenant is founded upon the law or, in other words, founded upon works. The Old Covenant was a covenant of works. The New Covenant or the New Testament is founded on the gospel. So we have law, gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's gospel throughout all the Old Testament. Don't hear me wrong. And don't hear me say that Old Testament saints were saved by works. They were saved by the gospel, by grace, looking to the coming of Jesus Christ. There's only one way of salvation, and that's Jesus Christ by faith alone, by grace alone. But the Old Testament was a covenant of works and the new testament is a finally final thing we want to learn today the new testament is the fulfillment of the old covenant now what do i mean by that if there's no old covenant there's no new covenant if there wasn't the old testament we don't have the new testament and this is an important message because it really helps us understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I once gave a Bible to a Romanian person who came over from Romania and gave him a Bible, his first Bible. He was 21 years old, never had a Bible, never read the Bible, never opened a Bible. And the first question he had the next day he saw me is, what, why is there two, two books? Why is there an old? What does that mean old? What does it mean new? He had no idea why the Bible was divided. And it was hard for him to kind of get his mind wrapped around the concept of an old covenant, a new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. And we kind of take that for granted. But there's where a lot of confusion comes in in theology. The various systems from dispensationalism to a Presbyterian form of covenant theology and new covenant theology. All this is a, a man's attempt, our attempt to wrap our minds around the relationships between the two testaments. And I'm going to say that one way of understanding that is distinguishing law and gospel, distinguishing the old covenant from the new covenant. They're not the same covenant with different administrations. They're distinct covenants. However, it's not two stories. This is not God having plan A, and when that doesn't work, he changes to plan B. And one day he may get back to plan A. No, this is a single story, a single redemptive plan that God had in mind the whole time. And it's always been based upon salvation being by the terms of the law. And those terms were not fulfilled until Christ fulfilled them for us. A pretty simple plan. Because without righteousness, there is no relationship with God. We will not see God 
without the imputed righteousness of Christ, without the law being fulfilled for us. So here we are, the law and the gospel and the old and new covenants. My first point is this. The law is the foundation of the old covenant. It's, it's the bedrock that holds up the old covenant. Not just the old covenant, but the old covenants. All the covenants of the Old Testament were rooted in the moral, unchanging law of God. We see in verse 31 of Jeremiah, the text that we had read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. You don't have to be a rocket science scientist to understand that that was a conditional covenant because you can't break an unconditional covenant. They broke this covenant. And by the word law, most often or many times, especially in the book of Romans, the word law is kind of a shorthand. It's emblematic. The word law is just kind of like a short way of saying the covenant of works. A covenant based upon merit. And first of all, we see, wherever we see the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. We're not talking about the positive law that we learned about. We're talking about the moral law that cannot be changed or altered. Wherever we see the law, we see a covenant. And wherever we see a covenant, we see the law. You can't separate them. I'm not saying they're identical. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying a covenant and law, the moral law, are one and the same. But I, I am saying this. You can't have one without the other. And the foundation of a covenant, all covenants... Every covenant is the moral law of God. If you take the moral law of God out of a covenant, you pretty much destroyed the covenant altogether. It just doesn't exist. The moral law is the foundation of all covenants. And we see a lot of similarities to the moral law, the law of God, with a covenant. They're, they, they're kind of almost synonymous, though they're not identical. Um. Both law and covenant are legal things. You know what's something that's legal? It's something that the court recognizes as authoritative, as binding. And there's no higher court than the court of heaven. Because God is the judge of the world. And there's no higher appeal than God himself. He is the judge. He owns all things. He's the lawgiver. He is the judge of the world. And both law and covenant are legal things. They're established by God himself. Remember in Hebrews 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham or a covenant with Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. When he went to notarize the deed or notarize the testament or the covenant, he had nowhere to go but himself. He's the highest court. So he notarizes his own covenant, his own promises, and makes it legal. It's binding, and that is binding to God. He puts himself under this oath that he will carry this out. I mean... Why would God have to put himself under a legal covenant? But he makes this promise. He swears by himself. Notarizing this covenant. So all covenants are legal. But so is the law. I mean, for a law to be just, it has to be issued by the right legal authority. I mean, I have no jurisdiction over you. I can't start telling you what to do. I mean, if I would, I'd get you out there and buy all my books. Come on, buy them. I mean, I can't force you or tell you to do something that's not in my jurisdiction to do. It's a bogus law that has no authority. It's not binding. You're not under it. 
But if I have jurisdiction, if you're my kid, and I say, go clean your room, all of a sudden that, because I'm a lawgiver and I have the jurisdiction, I have the right to issue rules, laws. We'll see, this is the moral law of God. This is not man's law. This is God's law. It's legal. It's binding. Now, also, both law and covenants, by their very nature, are both relational. Now, think about that. You might not think of the law being relational, but that's exactly what it is. Every commandment only exists because there's two people. You cannot have law in a single-person world. You know, how do you obey anything if you're the only person that exists in a void or a vacuum? You can't. You can't be selfish. You can't be loving. You can't do anything. You can't steal. You can't lie. You can't, you can't be good. You can't be bad. Does that make sense? But all the laws is your relationship with God, love God, and love your neighbor. It's all relational. It tells you how to have a relationship. And the law is a reflection of God's own triune relationship. If God wasn't a trinity, he wouldn't be righteous. Think about that. You say, well, God's just all about his glory. He's just selfish. No, God, the Father, is about the glory of his Son. And the Son is about the glory of his Father. And I can tell you who the Father loves. He loves his Son. The Son loves his Father. And there's pure righteousness and morality It's a reflection of their own relationship within themselves. It's a beautiful thing. But without relationships, there's no law. And thus the law, by its very nature, is relational. It tells us how to have relationships. And it's sin that destroys relationships. The wages of sin is death. It separates us from a relation with God. Separates us from relationship with one another. If you're getting a divorce, it's because of sin. Let's face it. If you're not fighting, you're fighting with someone, it's sin. That's why God hates division and loves unity. Because unity is about righteousness. And sin is about division. But so is a covenant. The very nature of a covenant is relational. In fact, every definition I've ever read from any reputable scholar always has the phrase relationship in their definition of covenant. Michael Horton says a covenant is a relationship of oaths and bonds that involves mutual, though not necessarily equal, commitments. O. Palmer Robertson in his book says, the closeness of relationships between oath and covenant emphasizes that a covenant in its very essence is a bond, something that brings people together. By the covenant, persons become committed to one another. Peter Gentry says, at the heart of a covenant, then, is a relationship between parties characterized by faithfulness, loyalty, and love. I mean, that's the highest form of an earthly relationship is the covenant relationship between a husband and wife. You know, some people are opposed to relationships being legal covenants. You know, I hear that about the a covenant of works given to Adam and Eve and said, no, it's just a gracious thing. It's no covenant of works in that. God doesn't have to have this covenant binding and restricting this. It's a relationship of love. No, there's no higher form of love than a love based upon a covenant commitment. Don't just say, I'm just going to live with my girlfriend and I, we love one another. No, you don't love one another. Unless you're willing to be in a covenant union for life. I give you my word. Doesn't matter how I feel two years from now. I will be faithful. God enters into a covenant with humanity. He made us in this covenant relationship. I will be faithful on my end. He entered into that with Adam and Eve. And he says, I will love you to the end. I will be faithful on my end. Now you must be faithful on your end. Made that covenant. God is good. And it's legal. The third thing about the nature between covenants and law is that they're both binding or eternal. You can't, once they're 
made. You don't unmake them. It's like the Medes and the Persians, you know, a decree. It's set in stone. There's no changing it. It's not reversing it. It's not hitting the delete button. Okay, let's redo that. Let's say no, all that, you know, it's only been six months. Let's just act like that didn't happen. No, none of that. It's bonding. The law is over your head and will remain over your head until it's fulfilled. It's not going to go away. God can't sweep it under the rug and say, okay, I was just act like you're okay. I'm not going to hold you to that. He can't. He can't. He's made a, a covenant. You can't not be in a relationship with God without perfect righteousness. It's legal. It's bonding. And, and for that means that every person is still under the covenant. It's either fulfilled or unfulfilled. Every person, even people in hell, are still under the law. They're still under the covenant of works. And it's, the penalty is still being enacted upon them. And they'll remain under the covenant of works forever and ever. And that's why hell doesn't end. It's a scary thing, isn't it? So both the law and covenant cannot be annulled. They're done away with. They're eternal. They're bonding. Fourth, both law and covenant Establish terms of the relationship with God. You know, the law tells you what you must do to have a relationship with God. The covenant tells you what you must do to have a relationship with God. Every covenant. The covenant God gave to Adam and Eve. And some people say, well, there's not a covenant there. I don't see the word covenant in Genesis 2 and 3. I just don't see it. Where's that word concept fallacy? If I tell you, Bring your bat, bring your ball, bring your glove, and we're going to go hit the mound and the diamond after, after the sermon. You know what I'm talking about. And you're not thinking we're going to play basket, basketball. You know it's baseball. And I didn't use the word baseball in all the conversation because I gave you all the concepts of baseball. And when you have all the concepts of a covenant presented there in Genesis 2 and 3 then you know that that is what it is. It's a covenant. And that covenant was based upon terms or conditions. Don't eat of this. In fact, you can do all this. Don't do that. Here's the conditions. And if you don't, I will break my relationship off with you. I will expel you from the garden sanctuary and you'll be dead. Dead ultimately means separated from God. Pushed away from God. A broken relationship. It's divorce. Being divorced from God. Genesis 17, you have a covenant. Here's the conditions. Circumcise your child, and if you don't circumcise your child, you've broken the covenant. You're out of the covenant. Exodus 19 The Mosaic Covenant tells us, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people. A lot of people look at the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel, as God's people. No, it was a covenant that based upon works. If you do this, then, then you will be my precious people. You'll be my treasured people. And what did the people of Israel do? What did they do? All that you've said. What foolish words. All that you've said. Cursed is the man that doesn't do all that has been written in the law to do them. Cursed if you don't do that. All that you've said will do. What they should have did if they were perceptive. Oh, Lord, is there not another way? What about that promised seed you promised Our forefathers, Adam and Eve. What about that promised seed that you promised Abraham? Could he not be our substitute? Could we not have another? We can't do it on our own. But they rather said, all that you said, we will do. And we see in Jeremiah 31, they have broken my covenant. And we see in the days of Christ, because of their constant Failure, God says, I regarded them not. 
This is not a covenant based upon grace. It's a covenant based on works. And you read the Old Testament. I know you have the hall of faith in Romans 11. You have Abraham. You've got Moses. You've got Elijah. You've got these men who believed and by faith. And David says, blessed is a man who, whose God doesn't impute their sin to them. I mean, there's people who are saved by the gospel through faith by looking to the coming Messiah. But besides this remnant, besides the remnant among Israel, the nation of Israel is a colossal failure. Failure, failure, failure. They broke the law. They broke the law. Hosea said, like Adam, they have broken my covenant. They have failed miserably. So the law and the covenant are based upon terms. Now, since God is the Lord and he's the governor of all, he's the judge, he sets the terms of the relationship. And the terms of the relationship is simple. Be ye holy as I am holy. God is too holy to, to demand anything less than perfect righteousness. You know, he can't even look upon sin. How could he have a relationship with the devil? How is that possible? He can't. He's too holy. To have a relationship with, with the devil, to be best friends with the devil would be an act of unholiness in God. And don't think you're any better than the devil. Don't you think, well, I'm not the devil. Who do you think you are? If you broke one commandment, you broke them all. You're defiled. You're wicked. You're dead. There's nothing good in you at all. You have no hope because you've broken the law. God can't pretend like it's not happening. Now, here's an important point. Now, get this. Both the law and covenant have essential and non-essential aspects to it. Here's one of the most important points of this sermon. Both the law and covenant have essential, like core things that you cannot take away. You can't, you know, it's irreducible. This is the core. What is the law? There's core aspects of the law that you cannot neuter or remove or it ceases to be the law. And there's core aspects to a covenant that you cannot take away or it ceases to be a covenant. But there's also things that could be added to the law, like positive law, that are not necessarily a part of the moral law, but could be an expression of it. And a covenant can have Various administrations or expressions in the expressions of those covenants not be essential to what a covenant is, but every covenant has a core element to it. And every law, all the moral law has something that's core. It's the very essence of the nature of God's triune relationship. It's the character of God, a reflection of his own moral essence. That's the irreducible nature of the moral law of God. And so both the law and covenant have essential and non-essential elements. Now, putty has essential ingredients to make putty. And if you remove one of the essential ingredients, it ceases to be putty. It changes its nature, its essence. But you can take putty and make a snake. You know how you do that? Roll it up, make you a little snake. You can make a dog if you're creative or good. Uh, you can do all kinds of forms. It can have various forms. But putty is putty at the very nature of it. Covenants can have various forms, expressions. It's the difference between essence and form or essence and shape. Or some people call the form accidentals. Things that are not necessary to make it what it is. Wherever covenant has accidentals. Or has a various non-essential expression. What are some of the accidentals or expressions of the Old Testament covenants? Well, the covenant given to Adam and Eve is a covenant based on law. It's a covenant of works. That's the heart of it. That's irreducible. The moral law is the irreducible nature of the covenant of works given to Adam and Eve. But it has some positive law elements to it. It has some, some things that's added to it. Like... Don't eat of this tree. Now, God could have said, you know, 
don't go in this area. Stay, you know, this, is, this area is off limits. If you step over into this area, that's the day you die. It could have been that, right? But it happens to be a tree. It, that's not what's essential to the covenant of works, but that's an expression. It's a positive law. And that law of don't eat of this tree is based upon the moral law. Obey God. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. And by disobeying and eating of the fruit, you broke the whole moral law. All positive law has to be built upon the moral law, but it's a various expression that can be abrogated or changed or altered or eliminated. And you do this as a parent, or at least I've done this. You know, we live on a, ha- on a hill overlooking the, the valley, and our driveway, if you take a ball and drop it, it rolls um, about a quarter of an acre all the way down to the highway. And that's a busy highway down there. So we put limits. Our little kids can go here. As they get older, they go here. As they get older, they can go here. And eventually, when they're 25, they can get to the highway. <laughs> but the limits for the little kids are up closer. That limit is out of love for them. Right? It's based upon the moral law. It's like, I love you, and this is dangerous. But as they get more responsible, we extend the limits. And we see that in the Old Testament, right? All these, don't eat this, don't do that. You know, uh, this is how it looks. The Bible tells us they treated the Old Testament people as children. And so he had a lot of positive law. Ceremonial law was positive. Judicial law was positive law. It's things that could be abrogated that doesn't actually abrogate the covenant of works in its heart, in its essence. Does that make sense? That there's, there's a central essence to the law. There's a central essence to the covenant of works. But there's this positive aspects, this, this things that could be added. And for, for the covenant given to Adam and Eve, it was a tree. For the covenant given to Abraham, it was circumcision. And for that which is given to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, it was all these tons of other things. Now, behind all that, that ties all those covenants together is the moral law that never changes. All those, these expressions, these administrations can change and can be abrogated. Hope that makes sense. Where we see a covenant, therefore we see the moral law. Every time the law is given, is given inside the confines of a legal covenant. There's no time that you just see the moral law dangling by itself. It's never just out there by itself. It's always in a covenant based upon relationships. It's always given in this form. Even the law written on the conscience of all human humanity. Even... Pagans and Gentiles that do not know the Lord are still under the covenant of works because the covenant has been inscribed into their heart by the law written on their conscience. They know that they have sinned. They have known that they're not in a relationship with God. They know inherently that they're alienated from God and they're under his wrath. They know that without any special revelation because God has revealed it to them in natural revelation. He's revealed it even into their conscience. And the law given to Adam and Eve had the moral law. The law given to Abraham had the moral law. And the law given to Moses and the nation of Israel had the moral law at its core. The Ten Commandments. And this is why I can't embrace except New Covenant theology. Because it's not just... All positive law that can be abrogated. No, at the heart of that covenant was the moral law that cannot be abrogated. That cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. It has to be fulfilled. The Old Testament covenants were non-essential expressions of the one essential covenant of works. I 
We don't have to be restricted by not eating of a particular tree today. Uh, we didn't see that, that command given to the nation of Israel. But the same thing Adam and Eve had to do, obey God, love God with all their heart, mind, and soul, is the same thing that the Jews had to do. And it's the same thing all of us are required to do. It's the terms of a communion fellowship with God, perfect righteousness. Now, the essential aspects of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants were restatements of the covenant of works. The Abrahamic covenant reissued or restated that moral law. This is what's required. The Mosaic covenant comes and restates that. This is what's required. It's based upon that. This is why the Mosaic covenant is a memorial, a restatement, reissuing. Or renewal. I call it a republication. Because it, it carries out all these ideas. In fact, the 17th century early Baptists, they use these words, all of them, like Nehemiah Cox. It's a memorial. The Mosaic Covenant reminds us of this covenant of works that demands perfect righteousness. He said, This must also not be forgotten that as Moses' law in some way included the covenant of creation and served for a memorial of it. John Owen says the old covenant in the perspective part of it, that is the essence of it, renewed the commands of the covenant of works. John Owen also said the Mosaic covenant revived the first covenant. And Philip Carey, 17th century Baptist, said this was the end of the law, for this end was to add it as to give a revival unto the covenant work. So basically God gives the moral law to Adam and Eve, and Moses says, okay, remember this, remember this, we're still under this. I mean, we learned that all people are under it, but God made it more clear to the nation of Israel. We're all under the law. But that's why we still preach the law, right? What advantage did the Jews have? They had the advantage of, of God coming back and saying, hey, listen, you're guilty. They had the advantage of being reminded of the law and its demands. Not in order that they may try to keep it, but in order that they may shut their mouth and realize they can keep it. That's why we always preach the gospel before, I mean, preach the law before we preach the gospel. We've got to get people lost if we're going to try to evangelize them with the good news. This is the advantage of the nation of Israel. They had the oracles of God. You know, that's why Paul says, you know, your circumcision means nothing. The fact that your children of Abraham means nothing. The fact that you have the law means nothing because the Gentiles have that too. Well, what advantage does the Jew have? Well, you have this. You've got the law preaching to you, which points you to the gospel. And you have the Bible Old Testament that was always pointing you not to yourself, but to that promised seed. That's why I believe our children, our Baptist children, have advantage to pagan children. They're not saved by being our children. But they do have family worship. They do have the law and the gospel. What an advantage. What advantage that the Jews had. But just because they had this advantage, and by the way, these advantages was natural grace. I mean, you can put it in that way. It was gracious of God to give these things to the Jews. But just because God was gracious in bestowing these things to that nation does not place them in a state of grace any more than our children are born in a state of grace. And for this reason, the word law is emblematic of the covenant of works or the law itself, the covenant of law. Moses summarized the Mosaic covenant in Deuteronomy 4.13 by using this phrase. And he said, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, what is this covenant? The Ten Commandments. Now, the Mosaic covenant has all these uh, non-essential expressions positive law that's added to it. But at the heart of it, at the heart of the Mosaic Covenant, the root of it, the thing you can't take away without destroying it. I mean, the Mosaic Covenant probably could have been the Mosaic Covenant 
if you could eat pork or not eat pork. That's accidental to it. But if you took the Ten Commandments away from it, the whole covenant destroys. And that's why I said, this is the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Paul identified the Old Covenant with the moral law in Galatians 3.17. And this is why he calls it the ministration of death in 2 Corinthians 3.7. It's not just a ministration of death of temporal blessings. Like, okay, you don't get to live in the land. And you don't, you know, overcome the Philistines. And you're going to have to have seven years of bad harvest. All that is included in the positive aspects of the law. But at the heart, it brought eternal death. It revealed I mean, they were already dead in their sins, so the covenant works has already slayed them. But it revealed that they were already dead. This is why Paul says the law, which is the covenant of works, the law which I thought, which promised me life. It said this is the means of life, actually was a means of death. Because the law showed me that I was a coveter. And once I, the law revived and I saw the true intent of the law, the true Strictness of the law, then I realize this thing is a murderer. It kills me. It's administration of death. This is why when the rich young ruler and the lawyer both approached Jesus, they said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not just live long in the land. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? What does the law say? He's saying, what does the, the law of Moses say? The old covenant say? What does it say? And the Lord said, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And, he, and, and the Lord didn't go, you misread that. I mean, he's a lawyer. He knows the law. He studied the law. He didn't go, you you got a bad interpretation. This is a legalistic interpretation. We need to correct that. Hey, that Mosaic covenant was a covenant of grace. You're not understanding this. Jesus didn't say that. He says, you read correctly. But one thing you lack. You know, that's what the, the rich young ruler is like. I've, what must I do? Keep the commandments. So I've done this for my youth up. He, he told the rich young ruler, one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and follow me. One thing you haven't done is the most important thing. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul. You just haven't done it. You've got an idol in your life. It's your wealth. And let me tell you here. If, let me just stop. If you're here and you don't know the Lord. I can tell you why. You have an idol in your life. Maybe it's your own autonomy. I'm not going to give up control. There is something that's keeping you from the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, you should be dreadfully scared because you're under the law. And it's condemning you and the weight of your sin is going to push you into hell. And you should not be bartering with God. He doesn't barter. I'll do this if you do that. No, this thing is a strict legal thing, and you must just repent and look for another righteousness. Philip Carey says, For although in itself the law or the old covenant requires perfect righteousness and promises a promise of life thereon, he that doth these things shall live in them, yet it could not neither Give righteousness or life in a state of sin. So, yeah, the law says this is what you must do to have a relationship with God. But we've learned that last, yesterday, the day before that, the law can tell you what you need to do. It can't empower you or bestow it upon you. That's my first point. Now, that's discouraging. I'll make it up for you. My second point is quick. Watch how fast this one goes. The gospel is the foundation of the new covenant. That the heart of the new covenant is the gospel. And this is what verse 33 says. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is a completely different law. The new covenant is not a new administration of the old covenant. It's a complete separate covenant. It's as distinct as law is from the gospel. Because this covenant, new covenant, brings the forgiveness of sin. Okay, that's my second point. Third point. The gospel of the new covenant is the fulfillment of the law of the old covenant. We don't have gospel without law. We don't have the new testament without the old testament. We don't have the new covenant without the old covenant. The new covenant does not just pop in by God just saying, hey, I'm going to do something different. This is the outworking, and better yet, the fulfillment of that which has already been laid out for us Throughout the Old Testament. The gospel is not another way of salvation. There's only one way of salvation. You've got to understand that. There's only one way of salvation. And that's perfect righteousness. And God himself can't get around that. And what are we going to do? I mean, we can't do it. I mean, this is a hopeless cause. The only solution is to God not come in his own divine being. He had to condescend and become human flesh. He had to become one of us. That's the only way. You see, it's the same moral law that was given to Adam and Eve, that was given to Abraham, that was given to Moses. All the law that was given, that core moral essence, had to be satisfied. This is why Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. What law did Christ fulfill? Some, another law? No, there's only one moral law. At the heart of it, there's only one moral law. It's to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It's the Ten Commandments. There's only one moral law. And this is why Matthew five seventeen says, For Christ did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. This is why we don't take your Old Testament and throw it in the trash. You know, that's Old Covenant. That's Old Testament. No, listen, that's vital. That's the foundation of your salvation. Philip Carey says, it's evident that Christ submitted himself to the Mosaic Covenant of works. John Owen says, therefore, did he, talking about Christ, all the days of his flesh, serve God in a covenant of works and was therein accepted with him, having done nothing that should disannul the virtue of the covenant as to him. And we read this two days ago in Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled in us. The same law given throughout the Old Testament is the very law of Christ obeyed and satisfied and not just that the same curses that the law brought upon the world christ endured galatians 3 10 says for all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse for is written cursed is everyone who does not abide in the things written in the book of the law to do them now it is evident that no one is justified before god by the law for the righteous shall live by faith But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law condemned us. It's the same law keeping people in hell is the law that Christ obeyed. The same curses that fell upon the human race because of iniquity is the same curses that Christ obeyed endured for you and I and the same promises given to Adam and Eve given to Abraham Abraham was given a promise right and that promise he knew wasn't just temporal blessings it wasn't just an earthly land of Jerusalem he saw a city and builder whose maker was God he saw glory and by faith he knew the land that he was walking on wasn't the real promise it was just an expression it was just a type it was just a, a metaphor of the real promise and by faith he saw glory by faith he saw Jesus and thus he was an heir to the world 
those promises of having a relationship in life with God. Now, that promise was given to Abraham was the, the promise that his seed would obey the law. And it's those promises that was given to Abraham that we received. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In, in short, in inclusion, the new covenant is born out of the old covenant. We are saved by works. As Jim Renaham said, we're saved by works. We're saved by the covenant of works. There's only one in one sense. Law and gospel must be distinct, but they come together because there's really only one covenant. It's a covenant of works. Legal, bonding. It just happens to be fulfilled for those who are saved by faith, by Christ. It's only a covenant of grace of those who have faith. Isn't that a marvelous salvation? Isn't You see how important it is to distinguish law from gospel and not blend them together? But see how the gospel and grace comes out of the law because of the works of Christ. So here we have the Old Testament, a covenant of works, the New Testament, covenant of grace. But salvation has always been by grace through faith alone for those who trust in Christ Let's thank the Lord for this Bible that outlines all these things for us. Dear Lord, we do take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for sending your son and providing us a way that seemed impossible. How could there have been a way of salvation when the covenant of works condemned us. Thank you for satisfying the demands of the law and giving us the righteousness of Christ that we may have life and be heirs to the promises of Abraham. This we thank you in your son's name. Amen.